the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're looking forward to a conversation with Lois Anderson. She's executive director of Oregon Right to Life. We're going to talk about Portland's new abortion bereavement leave and the cases pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the Texas uh, heartbeat uh, law and the Mississippi challenge the the Supreme Court will take up on December 1st. She'll join us right at the top of the second hour of today's program. We'll also hear from Greg Ten Els, um, Elshoff, who is the author of For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. And we'll give you all the important details on The Most Reluctant Convert, the untold story of C.S. Lewis, produced by Max McLean, who plays C.S. Lewis in theaters on Wednesday, November 3rd through the 18th. Now, it's not every day during that stretch of time, but you can check it out at cslewismovie.com. For all the important details and to purchase your tickets. It's a limited run, so there's not a whole lot of time, but you can check it out online. Again, cslewismovie.com. Well, the climate change conference in Glasgow, Scotland, kept in mind two um, numbers, 1.5 and 45. Most world leaders have agreed to the scientific consensus view that the planet is a ticking time bomb If temperatures increase more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, that's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, the world can't avoid catastrophic climate change. Now, I've been hearing this my entire life. It's either been global cooling or climate change. Uh, To avoid this, the roughly 100 heads of states attending have to agree to cut that collective um, equal net of uh, global emissions, uh, a reduction of greenhouse gases of 45 percent by 2030. Again, 1.5 and 45. That's according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Well, to achieve that figure, the UN Environmental Program says countries have to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 7.6% annually over the next eight years. Every fraction of a degree of warming, they say, a UN panel says, will produce more wildfires, floods, and famine. Well, there are two ways to get there. One uses natural gas as a bridge. Um, It's a fuel to... um, augment wind and solar the other um, all new fossil fuel production representative garrett graves who's a republican out of louisiana says that would be a disaster we're going to have a 50 percent increase in energy demand globally over the next 29 years a 40 percent increase in natural gas demand we can either provide those clean energy solutions out of the united states or we can allow china to uh, service those countries and that demand We can allow Vladimir Putin to do that. It doesn't make sense. End quote. Well, the administration proposes the U.S. reduce its emissions 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. That's roughly double the U.S. previous goal. Well, the 27 nations of the EU vowed to reduce their emissions by 55 percent below 1990 levels by 2030, or roughly 7% a year. Well, earlier this year, Japan raised its targeted reduction 
to 46 percent from 26 percent from 2013 levels. We are determined to meet our goals of a 50 percent reduction in emissions by 2030. Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts said the planet is running a fever. There are no emergency rules for planets. We have to pass this legislation now. Well, the jury is still out on some of those details, but nonetheless, that was what was agreed upon during the Glasgow Climate Summit. But leaders haven't met their own past pledges, which leads many to be skeptical about whether or not they will, in fact, reach these latest numbers. World leaders met at the U.N. Climate Conference this week. And Stuart Barney, who is a uh, Fox business reporter during his latest My Take on his program, criticized the the, uh, energy approach as world leaders met in the United Nations Climate Change Conference. He says this, the climate summit has begun. They're already managing expectations down. That should not be a surprise. They're meeting in the middle of a fossil fuel shortage. So they're trying to cut the use of oil, gas and coal right at the time when the world wants it and needs it most of all. It's bizarre to see President Biden beg OPEC to produce more oil while criticizing Saudi Arabia for its oil production. It's strange to see world leaders piously laying out targets for the future when they haven't met the pledges they made in the past. It's annoying to see our president discuss handing over hundreds of billions of dollars to other countries when we're running trillion-dollar deficits back home. It is distressing to hear that Xi Jinping is still building coal-fired power plants because China has a chronic electricity shortage. It's troubling to see the U.N. pressure banks not to lend to the energy industry. You want the U.N. to tell us where to invest? My sense is that the public turns Glasgow off. Uh, You're more concerned with getting Christmas presents on time and travel for the holidays. Did you see the chaos this weekend? And when the public sees gasoline and natural gas rising in price, they're not going to be happy with what they're um, smoking over in Glasgow. Well, in the midst of all of this, in their joint statement ever, the first ever, the spiritual leaders of Christianity's three largest denominations addressed the United Nations and the climate crisis as they have Identify it. Listen to the cry of the earth, pledging meaningful sacrifices, stated their appeal. We must decide what kind of world we want to leave to future generations. Well, Pope Francis of the Roman Catholic Church, Bartholomew, uh, the first ecumenical patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church, and Justin Welby, the evangelical Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, issued their plea this month to delegates attending ne- uh, the UN Climate Summit in Scotland. Noting that life on the earth, which God has given, has become an urgent matter of survival, the three leaders framed inaction as a severe injustice. The people bearing the most catastrophic consequences of these abuses are the poorest on the planet, they stated, and have been the least responsible for causing them, end quote. While the Luzon World Evangelical Alliance Creation Care Network wholeheartedly endorsed the statement, the environmental crisis represents the greatest challenge humanity has ever faced. Well, I would disagree with that point from the beginning. The greatest crisis, of course, is the one that is internal. Nonetheless, we know what they are referring to. LWCCN co-analyst for Creation Care, Ed Brown, said uh, is a, it's monumental failure to obey the clear command of Scripture to care for God's creation. Well, Francis, Bartholomew, and Welby urged corporations to seek people-centered profits. They called on nations to stop competing for resources and start collaborating. How likely is that? But they also called on Christians to pray, celebrating this season of creation. In 1989, then ecumenical ecumenical patriarch Demetrios 
Uh, the first declared September 1st as a day of prayer for creation. In partnership with the World Council of Churches, the day became a season extended to October 4th. And in 2015, the same year, Francis issued the landmark environmental um, uh, encyclical. The Catholic Church embraced the initiative. Brown served as the Season of Creation Advisory Committee until last year. So not only are secular authorities uh, raising the alarm, but also some ecumenical authorities as well. Well, the UK-based Center for Countering Digital Hate, and that is translated in this case, those who do not embrace the details of the climate crisis rhetoric, want to censor organizations that disagree with it on climate po- on uh, climate policy. Now, keep in mind, there are scientists who do not embrace this view as well. It released an absurd report attacking the Media Research Center and eight other conservative organizations in an attempt to shut them down online. Now, science, it seems to me, is is founded on the notion of debate, challenging findings and reconsidering and considering what is uh, currently understood. Well, the port, report rather also targeted targeted eight other conservative organizations, the Daily Wire, Breitbart News, Washington Times, Town Hall Media, Newsmax, the Federalist Papers, the Patriot Post and the Western Journal for daring to promote debate over the approved climate change narrative. Now, the propaganda report headlined the Toxic 10, how 10 fringe publishers fuel 69 percent of digital climate change denial, includes three recommendations to censor the organization the group doesn't agree with. These include stop monetizing their content, stop allowing them to buy ads, and it even wants social media firms to comprehensively label what it calls climate denial. Uh, there's a rather lengthy article on the subject, which is uh, worth reading. Uh, but again, the um, uh, the toxic 10, how 10 French publishers fuel 69 percent of digital climate change denial. Now, Interestingly enough, those in the scientific community who uh, do not embrace the prevailing view of the of the moment uh, have essentially been silenced if they want uh, to hold positions of influence and uh, teaching positions and so on. So the debate has ended not because it's settled, but because it's no longer tolerated, which is a centerpiece, it seems to me, of science. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back to continue in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with the Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life on Portland's abortion bereavement leave. And I'll see if I can get her to comment on the Supreme Court's decision to take up a couple of abortion cases. One where arguments were heard yesterday, more of a procedural uh, case, and the other, the Mississippi uh, law that could have broader implications. That's coming up at the top of the second hour of today's program. And we'll also hear from Greg Tin Elshoff, author of for shame. Well, four taxpayers in Pennsylvania, they decided enough is enough after footing the bill for a school board attorney who told them that the school system could limit their First Amendment rights. Well, the taxpayers filed a free speech lawsuit in federal court that could set a precedent for invalidating policies that shield both school administrators and elected officials from public criticism. Now, our lawsuit seeks a case precedent to establish that citizens cannot be censored or intimidated by government officials for exercising their First Amendment rights at a school board meeting. That's a quote from a former member of the Pensbury School Board Uh, Simon Campbell. In their suit, Campbell and three other taxpayers whose children are or were enrolled in Bucks County 
A Pensbury school district asked the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania to strike down school board policies used to censor stu- uh, citizens rather who dissent. The Institute for Free Speech, which is a Washington-based nonprofit law firm, represents the four plaintiffs. Their suit names Pensbury school board officers and other members, as well as the board's lawyer and current and former district officials. Uh, An attorney for the Pensbury School District, who's among the defendants, is on record informing parents and other residents that they don't have First Amendment rights during the public comment section of a school board meeting. That's according to the suit filed the 1st of October. Well, the lawsuit quotes Clark at some length, arguing that the First Amendment does not protect speech that violates what he describes as reasonable guidelines. Huh. Well, these guidelines could be extended to include comments that label government officials as criminals or incompetent, Clark said during the December 17th board meeting, one of several over the past year that figure into the litigation. Um, Parental participation in school board meetings has gained national attention, as you know, in recent months, as parents protested public school policies on transgender students using critical race theory in classes and imposing mask mandates and other COVID-19 restrictions. Well, in a controversial memo dated October 4th, Attorney General Merrick Garland directed the FBI and the Justice Department to pursue and possibly prosecute what he describes as criminal conduct towards school personnel. That's been broadly defined by some school boards to mean dissent, period. Well, legal and analysts for the Heritage Foundation were among those uh, that criticized the move, saying in a commentary that the Garland memo looks like an effort to use the FBI to threaten and silence parents who are outspoken opponents of critical race theory in schools. We're going to continue to follow this developing story, uh, one that's being repeated in other places around the country as well. Meanwhile, a CDC advisory panel has recommended COVID-19 vaccines for kids ages 5 to 11. Yet another hoop that's now been jumped through. Well, vaccine advisors for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention voted today that children ages 5 to 11 should get COVID-19 vaccines. Now, that's a should, not must, at least not yet. The vote comes after a special federal advisory committee met to debate the issue. The final say on the matter is expected from D.C. Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. Well, last week, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration authorized emergency use for kids doses, which is about uh, which are about one third of the dose given to adolescents and adults. The vaccine is already approved for emergency use in children 12 to 15. Tuesday's move, it means that as many as 28 million more children could be eligible for vaccinations as soon as this week. Only Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines are available thus far for adolescents, and the Moderna and Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccines are still being tested. At the end of October, the FDA affirmed results from Pfizer, showing that its two-dose shot was nearly 91% effective at preventing symptomatic infection in young children. The Biden administration, awaiting a green light, has been assembling and shipping millions of COVID-19 shots for children. We're not waiting on the operations and logistics, the White House coronavirus coordinator uh, Jeff Zentz said on Tuesday, assuring that the administration is in great shape on supply. Now, it's interesting to me, the president first made the announcement, this is what's going to happen, and then trotting behind him were the uh, FDA, uh, the, the first the small committee, then the the whole FDA uh, committee that decided that emergency use was being authorized. Now the CDC. I can't imagine the president making the announcement and then any of these agencies under his authority then saying, no, this is a bad idea and saying no. 
Uh, but that's just my view on it. Well, Zent said that the administration had started preparation after the FDA's authorization. That was the committee, not the full emergency authorization. Workers at Pfizer and distribution centers then began to prepare and pack 15 million doses. Uh, Walensky has also stressed that Pfizer BioNTech clinical trials on the vaccine for children have found it to be highly effective in preventing serious disease with no severe side effects, though children are less likely to suffer severe COVID infections, which has led some parents to question whether or not they actually need to be vaccinated. There has been a great deal of anticipation from parents, Walensky says, and I would say trepidation from other parents as well. He says, I encourage parents to ask questions and I would... uh, Certainly agree on that point as well. A civil rights leader condemned Terry McAuliffe's race-based teacher plan as racist and insulting. The civil rights leader and Virginia parent activist condemned the Virginia Democratic gubernatorial candidate for emphasizing the race of teachers in Virginia's public school system and lamenting that more teachers are white, while roughly half of Virginia public school students are not. And by the way, they're not majority African-American. It's a very diverse community. It is explicitly and implicitly a racist approach to education. Bob Woodson, who is a civil rights veteran, president of the Woodson Center and an African-American. We got to uh, uh, to work hard. Uh, to diversify our teacher base, McAuliffe had said at a campaign event in Manassas Sunday, 50% of our students are students of color, 80% of our teachers are white. So what I'm going to do for you, well, for the first state in America, if you go teach in Virginia for five years in a high demand area that could be geographic, it could be coursework, we will pay room, board, tuition, any college, any university or any HBCU, historically black college and universities, here in Virginia. Now, what do you do with the displaced uh, teachers uh, who happen to be uh, white, the 80 percent? What do you do with them in this process process? Well, Woodson, again, an African-American, condemned this idea as insulting and racist. The assumption is that in order to recruit more black teachers, that you've got to subsidize candidates in order for them to teach. They're not offering this to white candidates, the civil rights veteran said, adding that this assumes that black students need subsidize, subsidies rather to teach. It's really insulting, too, he said. Why is he talking about providing special assistance to teachers, candidates, and then talking about HBCUs? That's more than a racist dog whistle. That's a dog megaphone, end quote. In other developments, Youngkin had the edge going into today's Virginia race for governor, a, a top pollster suggests, but, you know, it ain't over until it's over. Uh, the polls are still open, I think, for a little while in Virginia, and it's not at all clear we'll have the final outcome before the end of the day. Former President Trump rallied Virginia supporters to vote for Glenn Youngkin, and Laura Ingram praised Glenn Youngkin for turning the Virginia governor race around. Well, we'll see if he did. Youngkin predicts a surprisingly good turnout among early voters vowing to win. Now, when he says early voters, he means people who showed up at the polls earlier today. The people have been voting for weeks. So we'll see how that impacts the outcome. Well, the anti-Biden rallying cry, let's go Brandon, is causing a mainstream media meltdown. This after four years of trashing President Trump using foul language on a daily moment-by-moment basis. Well, corporate media and liberal reporters have come together, united in a common cause as everyone from allegedly neutral reporters to far-left pundits have gone nuclear in an attempt to shut down three words, let's go Brandon, which of course mean much more um, offensive words. The Washington Post reporter Ashley Parker and Carissa Wolf wrote on what they considered vitriol from Biden critics in a piece titled Biden's critics hurl increasingly vulgar taunts. 
that uh, reminds me of that um, that meme from years ago. Son, why are you doing X, Y, or Z? Something that they shouldn't be doing. I learned it by watching you. Was the the retort, and I think that's what could be said now by those who use the rather innocuous replacement of the actual words they represent. Let's go, Brandon. I learned it by watching and reading and listening to you. In other developments, NBC spotlighted gun dealers selling Let's Go Brandon ammo as a right-wing code for profanity. At least they're using code. It wasn't used during the previous administration. Y'all just came right out and said it. Southwest has launched an investigation into the pilot accused of saying the phrase during a flight over the intercom, calling it unacceptable. And as his employer, um, they certainly are entitled to regulate what is and isn't said by their employees. Russia and China uh, China leaders were glaringly absent from the COP26 climate summit. Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping are not among the world's leaders to uh, attend the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow, Scotland this week, raising questions among attendees regarding their commitment to lowering greenhouse gas emissions. Xi opted not to attend the United Nations summit in person, instead submitting a written statement that called on developed nations to take action, but that did not include a new pledge on climate action. China is considered the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Putin also opted not to attend the summit in person, citing concerns about the COVID-19 pandemic. A Kremlin spokesman said the Russian government considered climate action one of the priorities of our foreign policy, though the United States and other nations have criticized Putin for slow progress. President Biden slammed both China and Russia following the meeting of the G20 nations in Rome on Sunday, accusing both nations of making a lackluster effort to address climate change on the eve of the Glasgow summit. The disappointment relates to the fact that Russia and including um, not only Russia, but China basically didn't show up in terms of any commitments to deal with climate change, Biden told reporters on Sunday. And there's a reason why people should be disappointed in that. I found it disappointing myself. In other developments, the president plans to announce a coalition of key companies to combat climate change. And at COP26 climate change conference, world leaders looked toward rather drastic cuts in emissions. Newt Gingrich ripped the Biden administration over the climate summit, saying it was all smiles, but nothing was accomplished. And Varney on Glasgow climate summit points um, points out that leaders haven't met their own past pledges. Cory Bush says Senator Manchin's opposition to the Build Back Better plan is anti-black. DeSantis slammed the president over the possible $450,000 payout to illegal immigrants. He seemed to be unaware of the plan when asked in Rome. A Washington state manhunt is on for suspects who shot an off-duty officer during an attempted burglary. And a suspended New York state principal pulled in $606,000 during his paid leave. Thinking about uh, taking leave, I wonder if I can pull in even a fraction of that. An Amazon-backed company could change the electric car game, keep you posted, and the green movement put Jeff Bezos on notice for his luxury choices. A business owner is urging the state to pass a pro-police initiative after the crime spike there. Well, Terry McAuliffe closed his campaign by complaining there are too many white teachers. Georgia is the latest state to sue President Biden over the vaccine mandate for federal contractors. And a Chicago judge halted the police vaccine mandate and ordered arbitration. A Cook County judge ruled yesterday that the city's vaccination policy can remain in place for now. But the city can't enforce the December 31st deadline for officers to get the shot without first arbitrating it with the police unions. 
The written decision by Judge Raymond Mitchell to grant a partial temporary restraining order centers on the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police lawsuit against the city over Mary Lori Lightfoot's COVID-19 vaccination mandate. From local WBEZ, the ruling is a major victory for police unions who have held that the city's COVID-19 vaccine mandate violates their collective bargaining agreements. Judge Raymond Mitchell ruled Monday that the mandate should be halted for police officers until those complaints can be settled in arbitration. Well, China locked 30,000 visitors inside Disneyland after one guest tested positive for COVID. More than 30,000 visitors at the Shanghai Disneyland theme park were kept within the park. Um, the gates on Sunday and forced to undergo COVID-19 testing after a customer tested positive for the virus, a move that underscores China's eradication efforts. With fireworks exploding above them as they uh, awaited nasal swabs, the Disney visitors became the latest Chinese residents to experience life under a zero-tolerance policy for the virus enforced by the country's government. Leaders there have taken stringent measures to contain pockets of the coronavirus in the country, despite criticism from business groups and a close to 80 percent vaccination rate. Well, President Biden appeared to doze off during the climate conference. The 78 year old uh, Biden, who warned military service members this summer that top Pentagon officials consider climate change to be the greatest threat to America's national security in the coming years. So I guess that thing that uh, China did just a short while ago is of no uh, consequence, sat with his arms crossed, appearing to drift in and out of sleep. Kate Pavlich says climate change is such an imminent and dire threat to humanity that the president fell asleep while people were talking about it. Town Hall wrote, meanwhile, Biden and other global elites are doing their part to fight global climate change by traveling in an 85 vehicle long motorcade. Meanwhile, China, whose communist leaders failed to show up to the conference, continue to be the world's worst polluters. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Is it time for my break? Yeah. All right. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour, we'll talk with Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life, on Portland's new abortion bereavement leave and what that uh, what that says about the nature of abortion. She'll join us at the top of the second hour of today's program. Well, today, of course, is Election Day, and in Minneapolis, uh, as they're voting today, They're voting on whether or not to disband the police. The Democratic governor and both senators, also Democrat, oppose the referendum. But Ed Morrissey explains they aren't campaigning against it. Now, residents there, particularly the African-American community, is very concerned and are concerned that liberals will think this is in their best interest and leave them vulnerable. Colin Kaepernick equates being an NFL athlete to slavery. Clearly, he doesn't understand what slavery was. Well, the former NFL quarterback um, was slammed over the weekend in response to video clips that circulated on social media where he tried to suggest that NFL athletes were treated the same as slaves. The former NFL player, according to the New York Post, uses the analogy in his drama series, Colin in Black and White, to depict the league's draft process and training camp. Netflix released the limited series Friday, billing the special as recounting Kaepernick's formative years navigating race, class and culture while aspiring for greatness. From Burgess Owens, how dare Kaepernick compare the evil endured by so many of our ancestors to a bunch of millionaires who choose to play the game? 
Clay Travis says uh, Colin Kaepernick compares the NFL combine, which allows all players of all races a voluntary chance to become multimillionaires to slavery. And from sports casting, the the league's minimum salary jumped to $660,000 this season, up from $610,000 a year ago. According to Over the Cap, 41 players were slated to make the minimum salary as of September 10th, 2021. Marco Rubio says the guys um, paid millions to sell shoes made by Uyghur slaves in China, actual slaves, apparently, as a Netflix series about injustice in America. In a taunting tweet, Elon Musk, he offers to solve world hunger. From the story, he responded to a repost of a CNN article that quoted Dave Beasley, the director of the U.N.'s World Food Program, who said billionaires need to step up now, namely Musk and Jeff Bezos. From Elon Musk, if WFB can describe on this Twitter thread exactly how $6 billion will solve world hunger, I will sell Tesla stock right now and do it. Well, according to a new poll, more Americans see Democrats as a threat to democracy. In the last page in this 26-page Marist poll document, and the poll includes 31% Democrats, 27% Republicans. Voters headed to the polls today in contests seen by some as a referendum on the presidency of Joe Biden. That's what midterms typically are. Tone Deaf McAuliffe makes the final pitch to Virginia alongside Randy Weidgarten, who kept schools closed. And he missteps. Uh, his missteps, rather, gave Glenn Youngkin an opening in this marquee race that he otherwise might not have had. Well, world leaders agreed to end deforestation and slash methane emissions. And President Biden napped during what he described one of the most important meetings in history. But if you didn't get much sleep, I guess you fall asleep. Uh, the president calls the climate crisis an existential threat and apologizes for Trump's decision to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Accord. Joe Manchin says he won't be pressured into a reconciliation vote, saying holding this infrastructure bill hostage is not going to work. Cory Bush unloads on Manchin, calling him anti-black, anti-child, anti-woman, anti-immigrant. She apparently ran out of breath because there's a whole lot more she could have added to that. In what may be a, a catastrophe for religious freedom, the Supreme Court allowed a lawsuit against a Catholic hospital over their refusal to do a transgender hysterectomy to stand. Border deaths soared as 2021 sets a record for the most migrant fatalities and record fentanyl uh, seizures at the border contributed to soaring overdose deaths in the U.S. The Pentagon plans to add a climate policy czar while China builds hypersonic missiles. I feel safe. In a controversial move, the CDC asserts the COVID vaccine offers more protection against COVID uh, than natural immunity. Hmm. The Seattle Police Union lambastes the mayor for $25,000 officer hiring bonuses after pushing to defund the police. And a plurality of Democrats want someone other than President Biden to be the Democrats' 2024 nominee. They also didn't nod toward the vice president. A Loudoun County School Board official claimed he might not have seen the email informing him of the sexual assault on a student despite responding to that report. Well, this day in history, 1783, General George Washington issues his farewell address to the army near Princeton, New Jersey. 
1889, North Dakota and South Dakota become the 39th and 40th states with the signing of the proclamations by President Benjamin Harrison. 1947, Howard Hughes pilots his uh, huge wooden flying boat, the Hughes H-4 Hercules, on its only flight, which lasted about a minute over Long Beach Harbor in California. 1948, President Harry S. Truman surprises the experts by winning a narrow upset over Republican challenger Thomas E. Dewey. 1962, President John F. Kennedy delivers a brief statement to the nation in which he says the aerial photographs have confirmed that Soviet missile bases in Cuba were being dismantled and that progress is now being made toward restoration of peace in the Caribbean. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment at the top of the second hour of today's program, Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life on Portland's abortion bereavement leave recently passed by the city council and cases pending before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, having to do with Texas and Mississippi law. We'll also hear from Greg Ten Elshoff for shame, rediscovering the virtues of a maligned emotion. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Also want to remind you that C.S. Lewis, the movie, it's called The Most Reluctant Convert, the untold story of C.S. Lewis produced by Max McLean. Uh, He plays C.S. Lewis in theaters, um, and that begins Wednesday. It's a very short run. I think it runs through the 18th, but not every day between the 3rd and the 18th. So you can check out um, more details at cslewismovie.com. You can purchase your tickets there. Look at what theaters are available. And they do say if your particular theater is sold out, I don't think that's the case yet, but if it happens to be, they're considering adding new dates. I wouldn't count on it, but uh, just keep that in mind. cslewismovie.com. Well, I was winding through some of the uh, events that took place on this day in history. I had a few others I wanted to mention. 1976, former uh, Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter becomes the first candidate from the Deep South since the Civil War to be elected president as he defeats incumbent President Gerald R. Ford. 1994, a jury in Pensacola, Florida, convicts Paul Hill of murder for the shotgun slayings of an abortion provider and his bodyguard. Hill would be executed September 2003. 2000, American astronaut Bill Shepard and two Russian cosmonauts, uh, Yuri Gidzenko and Sergei Krikilov, um, became the first residents of the International Space Station. 2004, President George W. Bush is elected to a second term as Republicans strengthen their grip on Congress. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration says drug overdose deaths in 2017 hit the highest level ever recorded in the United States, with most of the increase due to a record number of opioid-related deaths. Well, Senator Joe Manson, a mansion rather, he slammed House uh, progressives during a Monday press conference for refusing to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill until he agrees to back President Biden's proposed reconciliation package. For the sake of our country, I am urging my colleagues in the House to vote and pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill, he said at a press conference. Holding that bill hostage is not going to work in getting my support for what you want. Well, he criticized the high cost of the reconciliation bill, which is the other bill, which stands at roughly one point seven five. 
$1.5 trillion, the newer version. It includes spending on universal preschool, extended child tax credits, and other measures. As more of the real details in the basic outline of the framework are released, what I see are shell games, budget gimmicks that make the real cost of the so-called $1.75 trillion a bill estimated to be almost twice that amount, some suggesting even more. This is a recipe for economic crisis. Well, Manchin's remarks came after House Progressive Caucus head Pramila Jayapal said on MSNBC, Uh, that the uh, president believes he could get 50 votes in the Senate for the reconciliation bill. Now, what um, Manchin is calling for is the the Congressional Budget Office to sign off on this. Will it actually be one point seven five trillion? The answer is no. But the question is, how much more is it? Some suggest two or three times that amount. He wants to wait until that review can be done and the report issued. uh, But others want to rush it through more quickly. We'll see who actually wins in this Shell game. Well, as mentioned, the Texas Heartbeat Act, known as Senate Bill 8, is once again up for consideration before the Supreme Court as a result of two consolidated cases Whole Women's Health versus Jackson and United States versus Texas. It uh, was scheduled for, uh, for, Uh, Oral arguments on Monday required the court to consider whether the federal government can sue to enforce the right of Texas women to get an abortion. And if so, whether the Texas Heartbeat Act can be enforced at all. Senate Bill 8, a Texas law banning abortions after a fetal heartbeat is detected, usually around six weeks gestation, has remained in effect since the 1st of September. Well, this is the second time the court has considered the Texas Heartbeat Act's unique procedural positioning and is being asked to halt its enforcement while the case is litigated in lower courts. The court declined to halt the law while the appeal is underway. Both cases have been scheduled for oral arguments much faster than usual. A week ago, the court granted... um, uh, the uh, uh, hearing placing the cases on what's known as the Supreme Court rocket docket. This is an emergency review procedure that allows a, a party to leapfrog uh, over the appeals court. In this case, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals without waiting for its outcome and go directly to the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, key U.S. Supreme Court justices raised the prospect they might act to halt Texas' far-reaching abortion ban, questioning the state's contention that federal courts can't block the law. Well, hearing the arguments two months after letting the measure take effect, justices, including Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, voiced skepticism about various parts of the Texas defense of the law. The court's considering separate bids by abortion providers and the Justice Department to block application of the law, which bans abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. The argument centered on an unusual provision, Texas included, to try to keep federal courts from getting involved in stopping the law. Texas made the law enforceable only through private parties so that courts wouldn't have to clear cut way um, uh, their way to block it. Well, courts typically block unconstitutional laws by ordering government officials uh, not to enforce them. Well, Kavanaugh characterized that provision as a loophole that's been exploited here and used here and expressed concern it could be used as a model to restrict other freedoms, including gun rights. Barrett um, questioned Texas' assertion that the clinics and others sued under the law in state court could raise constitutional arguments at that stage. I'm wondering, she said, if in a defense posture in state court, the constitutional defense can be fully aired. Well, both Kavanaugh and Barrett were in the majority when the Supreme Court let the law take effect on September 1st on a 5-4 vote. The court said the providers failed to overcome complex and novel 
uh, antecedent procedural questions, even while acknowledging serious questions about the law's constitutionality. Well, the Supreme Court rejected an appeal from a Catholic hospital in California on Monday that was sued after refusing to provide a hysterectomy for a transgender male who is actually a female. Well, the high court did not make any significant judgments on religious liberty and gender identity discrimination matters and instead returned the case to the state court for further litigation dealing with the hospital specifically. Well, three conservative justices, including Justice Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito and Neil Gorsuch, opted to review the case while recent conservative appointee Justice Amy Coney Barrett chose to dismiss it. The subject of the case was a transgendered man, which means a woman, uh, Evan uh, Minton, who was scheduled to receive a hysterectomy at the Catholic Mercy San Juan Medical Center in Sacramento. Upon learning that Minton wanted the hysterectomy in order to transition, a nurse canceled the appointment, Minton claims. Well, the patient had the surgery at a different hospital three days later, but still filed a lawsuit against the Catholic hospital, arguing that its denial of services constituted discrimination on the basis of gender identity. And again, the Supreme Court made the decision that they would not take up that case, case rather, but would allow the lower courts to do so instead. Finally, a um, federal judge rejected a lawsuit by the Seattle mother of a 19-year-old man gunned down in an an autonomous no-cop protest zone dubbed CHOP and CHAZ in the summer of 2020 in Seattle, arguing the city is not responsible for his killing in the six blocks that included an abandoned police precinct. And formally rejecting the lawsuit on Monday, the district judge ruled that um, Danita Sinclair, the mother of Horace Lorenzo Anderson, could not prove that the city's actions, or rather in this case, inaction, which included abandoning the East Precinct during the violent demonstrations over the death of George Floyd, directly resulted in her son's death 12 days later. What was first referred to as the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ, was rebranded to the Capitol Hill Organized Protest, or CHOP, saw violence persist for weeks before Anderson was fatally shot on the outskirts of Cal Anderson Park. News and traffic are coming up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And when we return, Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from Greg Tin Elsoff. He's the author of For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. That's coming up later in this hour. But first, we want to have a conversation with Lois Anderson, who is Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life, on Port- uh, Portland's abortion bereavement leave, uh, which is uh, rather... Head scratching. Well, Portland is now giving bereavement leave to employees who've had an abortion. Now, according to the Oregon Public Broadcasting, this policy uh, change was enacted by the unanimous vote of the city council. Pro-abortion advocates are calling it the cutting edge of abortion rights legislation, but it is fraught with implications. That actually is a nod to the pro-life position on the subject. And uh, Lois, I wanted to invite you to help us think this through. First of all, your thoughts on the bereavement leave for women in Portland who have abortions. Yeah, head scratcher is a great way to put it, Georgine. It's um, it's something that that they're they're saying one thing, but it's revealing the truth that they didn't mean to reveal, which is that 
abortion is a tragedy. It is something to be grieved, and that women who many women who experience abortion um, never get the opportunity um, to to properly to properly process and grieve that experience. Um, ironically, because society tells them this is a good thing for you. So I would have loved to have been really a fly on the wall as this policy was developed behind closed doors before they brought it um, to the city council to really understand what was in the mind of people Mm -hmm. who really believe that women should have the right to abortion, that ending the life of an unborn child is, is, um, is actually a moral good. And now we should provide this bereavement leave for women. It's just so upside down. It's really hard to wrap your head around it. But I think as pro-life people, what we need to take from it is, hey, this is, this is a, a big acknowledgement that this is not just um, a small thing. This is not just um, uh, going to the dentist and getting a tooth pulled or having surgery. This is actually um, the... Uh, something to be grieved. Yeah, it's a loss. And it really is a uh, an affirmation of the pro-life uh, position. Now, Andrea Miller, who's the president of the National Institute for Reproductive Health, gushed about how this policy would de-stigmatize abortion as well as workers having to explain or justify the type of leave with their boss. Uh, and again, it seems to me it does just the opposite. It affirms that a life has ended. You are mourning the loss of a life and the the decision that that led to that loss uh, and uh, it's a nod to the pro-life position but it seems to me those who are embracing it don't recognize that it certainly provides an opportunity i would think for the pro-life community um that that comment i i read that as well and with it was such i was again trying to get my head around mm-hmm. it and maybe part of it is because we live in oregon i grew up went to school in Portland. I mean, it's much different now, but it still gets like the culture and what we're used to hear about the wide acceptance of abortion um, culturally that it's hard. I think it's probably hard for us to think about that a workplace where a woman would be treated um, in a way that would make her feel feel marginalized if she had an abortion like that that was part was trying to get my head in that space like for us that's probably hard to imagine um but maybe it does happen but certainly like even even that feeling of of being afraid of being stigmatized like why is that there why is that response there and i think for us we can really turn to women who have had abortions who now um, have changed their mind about abortion, who are pro-life and who speak out about their experience. This is a really good opportunity for us to highlight their stories, to turn people to to their experience, to what to see what they walked through. They're just such a powerful witness because mm-hmm. um, they have been through it, and uh, for many of them. For most of them, I think um, I was trying to look at some statistics and didn't find the study before I hopped on the phone with you. But so many of them do have a sense of relief initially, but it quickly um, or slowly turns into a regret as they really begin to process what actually happened in that in that abortion that they had an innocent child that they that their mother and that they ended the life of that child is just 
it's it's um, it is traumatic, and so I just find it, it's very revealing to see um, the uh, these pro-abortion advocates jump on the bandwagon as if this is something to be embraced by them when it's just uh, revealing how um, that, like you said, this is a loss. This is a trauma that women go through. Yeah. And to acknowledge that says a great deal. It's like, you know, pay no attention to the pain behind the curtain. It's not there. We're not going to talk about it. We're going to pretend that it's not there. Uh, And and this just pulls the curtain back and exposes the pain that is the natural outgrowth of a decision that ends a life that's made consciously by uh, an individual. And uh, again, I think it just opens the door perhaps to a conversation that reveals the truth behind that kind of a procedure and that kind of decision. Now, why I while I have you here, I should say, I wanted to ask you to comment a bit on the Supreme Court. They heard arguments. Um, they were more procedural arguments yesterday regarding mm-hmm. the Texas abortion law. But coming up on December 1st, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear arguments regarding the Mississippi case. Um, that many are suggesting could be an entree. I think it's less likely given the nature of the court, but could be an entree to overturning Roe versus Wade. Your thoughts about um, they're taking up the case and rather quickly and the likelihood that it could be a major case uh, with regard to Roe versus Wade. Yeah, it's certainly an exciting time um, to be watching what the court is doing um, and how I, I learned a new term this week, the rocket docket, <laughs> um, which is which is apparently uh, uh, the term for what they did um, on Monday and taking up uh, the challenges to two different challenges to the Texas Heartbeat Act. Um, and doing it within, I think it was a 10-day period that the attorneys had to prepare their briefs and to prepare their remarks, which is a very quick turnaround as far as the court goes. And I think that observers um, were, you know, reading the tea leaves of the questions and um, that the court might be leaning uh, toward giving standing to the providers from Texas that were challenging the law that may be leaning against um, uh, giving the Department of Justice uh, standing to for the federal government to challenge the Texas law. But as anybody who um, observes or has commented on the Supreme Court, it's very unpredictable what, what they're going to do. But I think that what's exciting is that these laws are being taken up. They're not being ignored. There's some um, serious discussion about what um, does the Constitution what the court should say about abortion? And Dobbs is really the the big the mm-hmm. big case. And the reason why is because the question that they that they took up um, was can states regulate abortion pre viability? And that that is a a question um, that has not been dealt with since Casey in 1992. Um, and that's uh, I think why. Pro-life observers are looking at the court as the possibility of a of a very good ruling, but of course we always temper that with being disappointed. And we were disappointed in the last um, decision that came out of Texas um, and also Louisiana. So it, it's hard not to be a little bit tempered in, in our enthusiasm, but it is a very important question because viability is a moving target. Um, and you can't have a constitutional right based on a moving target like viability. And so um, I'm really looking forward to listening to the arguments, the briefs that have been submitted 
are an amazing body of work um, of, you know, pro-life lawyers and um, scientists who have been working their whole lives, some of them for this opportunity, have really um, brought um, a excellent case and excellent arguments to bear on this. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the court does. And don't forget to pray. Absolutely. <laughs> and not just leading up to December 1st, but continuing to pray as the court um, dis- discusses among themselves and prepares their written briefs that will be happening for months. Mm-hmm. And so we can't let up. Well, and just the fact that the, the issue is being heard before the U.S. Supreme Court is an encouraging development. It's been a very long time since um, and lots of space in between uh, times when the Supreme Court is considered anything related to Roe versus Wade that has the potential to have a major uh, impact on that uh, that law. So we absolutely need to be praying fervently about it. Well, Lois, I appreciate so much your your joining us uh, with regard to this uh, this new um, uh, provision, this bereavement um, leave that's being extended here in the city of Portland. Any advice uh, to KPDQ listeners who are thinking about a friend or a family member who may have the procedure and then take advantage of this bereavement in terms of how we might approach them in a way that's compassionate, but also um, acknowledges what this bereavement acknowledges? Well, I think the most important thing um, when you are approaching a woman who is in, you know, a crisis and um, has an unexpected, unsupported pregnancy and and makes that really tragic decision to go through with an abortion is um, to be compassionate, to be loving, um, and to offer assistance. There are wonderful um, resources through First Image and other pregnancy centers in the, in the Portland area um, that have Bible studies, they have counselors, um, just being a person who they know they can talk to. Um, and I know it's hard for us because we see the life of that child and the life of that child is now uh, tragically ended. And um, we should feel bad about that and some we should feel angry about it. Um, but once that decision has been made that that woman needs to be cared for Absolutely. and she is also she is also um a, an important person and um you know you don't know what kind of lives you're going to save in the future by caring for her and ministering to her in a compassionate loving way Absolutely well Lois again thank you so much for talking with us today You bet thank you bye bye Again, Lois Anderson is executive director of Oregon Right to Life on Portland's new abortion bereavement leave uh, and cases uh, pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with, uh, we'll hear from Greg Tin Elshoff. His book is titled For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in recent years, there's been a mini industry of best-selling books. There have been TED Talks and popular therapies that have emerged to free people from toxic shame. And yet, what if cutting off the ability to feel shame is not the solution? 
Well, in the book we're going to be talking about, For Shame, philosopher and author Greg Tin Elsoff, he carefully traces the positive role of shame and the role that it can play in contributing to a well-ordered society. He distinguishes shame from embarrassment and guilt and shows that while casting off unhealthy shame is always positive, a proper understanding of shame and how it functions in society can better cultivate virtues of decency, of self-respect and dignity. Perhaps shame is good, or better put, a certain kind of shame can yield unexpectedly good gifts. Well, my next guest is Greg Ten Elshoff. He is a Ph.D. with the University of Southern California, a professor of philosophy at Biola University, the founding director of Biola's Center for Christian Thought. He's published a number of academic articles and several well-regarded books, including the Christianity Today Book Award winner, Told Me So. He joins us today to talk about his latest for shame. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Elshoff. Well, thank you for having me. This is such an important book, and I can think of why I think it's important to your readers and to society in general, but let me ask you, what motivated you to take on this subject that is, as you point out, much maligned, the uh, uh, the notion of shame? Well, it started for me. I, I, um, I took up an interest in classical Chinese wisdom traditions a number of years ago, especially uh, Confucianism. And uh, as most people uh, recognize, Confucianism is a shame-honor um, uh, tradition. And as I got into that uh, tradition, I found that the classical Western canon is also full of um, uh, the talk of shame and honor. And so I, I guess once all of the anti-theme literature started coming out, it, it struck me as a little surprising that uh, that uh, these the, the great human wisdom traditions had got it wrong, both in the East and the West, as concerns the value of shame. So uh, I started to look, and I, I thought, what am I missing? What, what, are they, what are they seeing that the great human wisdom traditions have missed? And that took me into a study of, of shame. You are very careful to distinguish between healthy shame and the kind of shame that is unhealthy. Can you just touch on that just a bit? Because I think for some listeners, the notion that this is a book that uh, suggests that we rediscover the virtue of a shame uh, might misunderstand. Yeah, good. Thanks for that opportunity. It is, it is a, um, it's a painful subject to talk about, yes. in part because it's, it's so easy uh, to misunderstand one another. I think it can help um, to think about some of the other painful and negative emotions that we experience. Uh, think about things like um, self-loneliness or self-guilt or self-betrayal. Uh, to talk of healthy self-betrayal or healthy self-loneliness uh, has a sort of strange ring to it. And yet I think upon reflection, we would all recognize that if you're, if you're without companionship, then the feeling that's apt for that condition is loneliness. And if you're without companionship, if you're alone and you don't feel lonely, uh, something's wrong, something's broken. And and similar with betrayal. If if you've been betrayed and you don't feel betrayed, then there's there's something wrong, something's broken. Your, Your emotions aren't in alignment with your situation. So I think the same kind of thing is true of shame. Nobody should want to feel shame, just like nobody should want to feel betrayal or feel loneliness. But if you have, in fact, been shamed, if you have, in fact, uh, lost social significance uh, in, in communities that matter to you, and you don't feel the sting of that, you don't feel the shame, 
then again, your, your, your emotions are out of alignment. You write that when we suffer shame, we feel somehow wrongly situated in the world. Guilt often accompanies this experience, but the experience of shame always involves the sense of diminished social standing. The experience of losing significance in the company of respected others, actual or merely imagined. We experience ourselves as a source of pain, discomfort, inconvenience or embarrassment for ourselves and for others. Talk a little bit about what shame is, whether it's the kind that we can benefit by understanding and responding rightly to or the kind that is imposed on us and uh, is unhealthy. Yeah, thank you. It, it is important to, to notice that uh, shame is the kind of thing that we can bring on ourselves or, as you say, uh, it can be imposed on us uh, from the outside. Um, shame, uh, like guilt, sometimes it's helpful to start with guilt because we're familiar with this, that, that guilt has both an objective side and a subjective felt side. To be objectively guilty is to have uh, violated the standard. Uh, and then the, on the subjective side is, is that emotional pain that you have when you recognize that you've violated the standard. You feel guilty. And we all recognize you can you can be guilty without feeling guilty, and you can feel guilty without being guilty. Uh, so we're, we're familiar with that. Shame has that same kind of uh, uh, structure. Uh, shame is, the, the, on the objective side, shame is the loss of social credit, the loss of social standing. If the opposite is honor, when you're honored, you, you increase in social standing. And then uh, on the subjective side, uh, uh, shame is that, that painful emotion that accompanies um, the loss of uh, standing in society. So now sometimes that loss of standing in society comes as a result of something you've done. If, if, you, if you've done something shameful, if, you, if you're guilty of some uh, uh, some shameful offense, then you will lose standing in the society of, uh, uh, you know, folks who value uh, keeping the moral standard. And that should be a source of pain. Uh, to you. If it's not a source of pain to you, then something, again, is, is broken. You're out of alignment. On the other hand, you can sometimes lose standing in society for reasons having nothing to do with anything you've done. It can be imposed on you. So, if my father is caught in some kind of shameful offense, um, uh, he will suffer shame, and so will I. I'll, I'll, I'll be thought a person of lesser significance, uh, lesser uh, importance. I'll be, I'll be wrongly situated in society. Or uh, other examples include folks who um, have visible uh, disabilities or um, uh, victims of abuse um, are often cited as folks who experience shame, but not because of anything that they've done. They're tragically seen as people of lesser consequence in society. And so they, they are objects of shame, and their emotions are often tracking that reality. They feel the sting of it. They feel their downward social mobility um, when it occurs. And again, I appreciate that you are very clear that you make a distinction between healthy aspects of shame and um, the fact that not all uh, shame is healthy so that readers who might be reluctant to take on a book that, as you put, the central thesis of which is that the whole wholesale degradation of shame and the corresponding attempt to eradicate it is misguided and that there is a um, healthy moral and emotional experience that uh, that can uh, be derived from 
uh, a healthy version of shame? Yeah, so uh, as I'm thinking of it, uh, what we mean when we when we call shame healthy is that it's 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 regulated. It's it's um, apt for the circumstances on the ground. So uh, any of these emotions, uh, take the emotion of guilt, for example, you can have healthy or unhealthy guilt. Uh, you'll, you'll experience healthy guilt if you are in fact guilty um, and you're feeling the pain of that. And, and your guilt has the right degree of intensity. So if you're, if you're uh, guilty of only a minor offense, you might think healthy guilt would be relatively mild. And if you're guilty of something atrocious, well, then healthy guilt will be uh, you know, more, uh, more intensely felt. And the same goes for shame. Healthy shame is shame that's apt for the circumstances uh, that give it rise. And so if, you're, if you've lost uh, social significance, well, then shame, that, that's your feeling shame, is just your body's and your, your um, soul's way of alerting you to that fact. But if you've only sort of lost, uh, if you've only suffered a mild diminishing of social status and you're feeling intensely um, uh, this experience of shame, well, then your shame is out of whack. It's, it's, it's not uh, tracking uh, uh, the way things are. On the other hand, if you've fallen into social freefall, if you've, if you've become a sort of pariah in society and your, your felt shame is great, well, it looks like then your shame is uh, tracking the way things are. And experiencing rightly shame that is, again, rightly applied to your situation or your actions ultimately motivates us to either repent or to act differently or to acknowledge and take responsibility for what we've done. What's the what's the goal of healthy shame uh, in contributing to the good life? Yeah, good. When our shame comes to us um, because... Uh, of something we've done, then, then to be sure, it can motivate uh, a change of course. But again, shame and even even intensely felt shame can come to us uh, for reasons having to do with what other people have done or for reasons having to do with what's happened to us and that we didn't choose. And so even there, um, uh, the thought, Alan Downs, a psychologist, uh, has this nice image that I've borrowed. He says that negative emotions are like warning lights. They, they alert us to the fact that something's wrong. So the, the powerfully painful feeling of loneliness is, is our self's way of warning us that we're, we're without companionship. And, and the powerful feeling of uh, betrayal is the self's way of uh, alerting itself to the fact that uh, it's without fidelity in its relationship. So similarly, self-shame, this, this painful emotion, Is, is the body's way of, of uh, alerting us to the fact that we're losing social status. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue the conversation with Greg Tin Elsoff. He is a Ph.D. His, his latest book is For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. The book is published by Zondervan. Again, we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Greg Tin Elshoff. He is the author of For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtue of a Maligned 
emotion. Now, one of the words that I think backs up the thesis of your book is the word shameless. It suggests that there is an appropriate level at which one should feel shame for one's actions. Um, can, and you begin by examining shamelessness more closely. Uh, can you talk a bit about that? Because uh, the absence of appropriate shame produces something for the individual, but certainly for society in general. Yeah, so here again, it's, it's helpful, I think, <clears throat> to compare shame to other emotions. So when we call someone fearless, what we mean is that uh, they don't tend to feel the emotion of fear when fear seems warranted or seems like um, the emotion that's apt. So when we call most people that I know don't think of it as a compliment to be called shameless. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't like their, their behaviors to be called shameless. And so if if shamelessness is a kind of vice, what that suggests is that that there are there are conditions where shame is is precisely the, the right thing to feel, and the shameless person doesn't feel it. Um, one of my favorite examples of, of a trope of shamelessness is well, there are two. I mean, you think about the shameless tourist. Uh, the shameless tourist is somebody who's um, whose behaviors are all out of whack with uh, with the conventions in the place that they're traveling, and they're 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 losing social status as as people look at them. They're, they're losing significance. They're they're being thought uh, lesser of by the people around them because of how out of whack they are. But they don't feel it. In, in fact, very often they just get louder. Uh, uh, the more they feel themselves out of whack. Or you think about the shameless self-promoter. This is somebody who is constantly talking about themselves, constantly um, promoting themselves in public. And if you do that long enough, the people around you will start to, you'll start to lose social significance. People around you will start to uh, try to exit the conversation. They'll, they'll, they'll think lesser of you. But the shameless self-promoter doesn't feel any of that happening. They don't, they don't feel the the pain of their social decline as they promote themselves. You write that the radical individualism of our contemporary Western mindset renders us uniquely incapable of integrating shame, unlike virtually all other cultures around the globe and throughout human history. Does our culture make it more challenging for us to acknowledge and recognize uh, shame in our own conduct and perhaps culturally as well? I think it does, and that's partly because in uh, in the in the wake of um, uh, the Enlightenment in the West, there's this ideal of of uh, self sufficiency and in rugged rugged independence or something like that. And to the degree that you, you hold up as an ideal that you would be absolutely independent, capable of the good life on your own, the idea that you would be fitted with uh, the tendency to feel pain when others think less of you isn't going to be a very good fit. You'll want to be rid of that if, uh, if what you're after is rugged independence. On the other hand, if you think that the good life is life with others, that the good life essentially involves a deep community with other people, then it's easier to see why we would want to have a kind of warning system, a, a painful emotion that alerts us to the fact that we're losing connections uh, with with the communities around us, so I think a kind of radical individualism uh, makes it really hard to see why anybody would want to keep anything like the feeling of shame around. When is shame, or at least the perception of one's shame, appropriate, and how do you escape 
the the burden of um, one's own shame. Yeah, it's well. I'm thinking it's um, sort of the perception or the, the feeling of shame is appropriate whenever, in fact, one is subject to shame. So when you've been shamed, that's the right time to, <laughs> to be feeling shame. Uh, just like when you're alone, that's the right time to be feeling loneliness. Now, it turns out that shame, unlike guilt, is the kind of thing that's very difficult to escape on your own. If, if I'm guilty of something, if, I, if I've wronged you in some way, there are things that I can do to escape my condition of being guilty. Uh, I'll never be innocent, of course. What's done is done. But what I can do is I can, I can ask forgiveness. I can make preparation. I can try to make things right. Uh, there, there are things that I can do to offset my guilty status. But shame isn't like that. When you, when you, um, when you fall out of step with society, when you, when you um, become an object of shame or when you're actively shamed, there's usually nothing you can do on your own. What, what you need if you've been shamed is you need somebody with status to identify with you. So when uh, uh, shame and honor are kind of like, um, you can think of them as like commodities. We all have a certain amount of shame and honor uh, that we carry around with us, and we 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 um, uh, there are these transactions. And so, if a person with high social standing associates themselves with a person of low social standing, some of their social credit goes over to the person with low social standing. We all learned this in junior high or high school or, or <laughs> wherever. So, the person who's fallen deeply into shame, what they need in order to be rescued from shame, is for someone in an honored position to identify, to condescend to their level, to identify with them and, 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 and transfer some of their social credit to them. There's so much in this book that we could talk about. Um, one of the chapters uh, is titled Shame Everywhere, and you make the point that um, this is a, a challenge for all of us. We've seen that shame is the negative emotion resp- emotional response rather, to the experience of being discredited in the company that matters to you, this loss of social significance or social capital is often a consequence of finding yourself somewhere wrongly situated in social context or related to someone who is wrongly situated. Because we live in a a world that is saturated with shame and shamelessness is uh, fairly common, where do we go with this this burden that we may carry? And I'm talking about the, the kind of shame that we rightly bear because of our conduct um, where do we go to um, lift ourselves out of it? You mentioned associating in the in the right circles, if you will, or with the right individuals. Jesus comes to mind. How do we deal with shame uh, so that we are not shameless and that we are shame free, if you will? Yeah. Well, uh, the the testing answer is that it's not entirely up to us. Uh, this is why. Uh, um, the experience of shame is so often correlated with the feeling of helplessness. Because again, unlike guilt, if you've fallen into shame, you're really uh, sort of at the mercy of uh, those who would rescue you from it. And, uh, this for me is at once a depressing piece of news, but also the beauty of the gospel that, uh, that Jesus condescended to the level of uh, the human condition. Uh, largely in order to lift the human condition out of its shame. So, so there is hope insofar as uh, the God of the universe has condescended to us, has, has offered, um, if you like, to tr- 
transfer his social credits to mm-hmm. us um, insofar as we're willing to embrace that identification. But it's not like guilt in that it's not like you could, there's a, there are things you can just do all by yourself uh, if you've fallen into shame. Um, and, and the other thing to say about this is that for those of us uh, or for those in society who have a high social standing, there's a calling here. Part of what it means to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ is to find those folks who've fallen into shame and to honor them, uh, to, uh, to confer social status on them and lift them out of their shame. So there's a call here to be others-oriented, I think. I think about um, the story of Peter who denied Christ, and of course his shame is now known through all the generations of Christianity and yeah. into the future. Um, can you talk a little bit about him, his res- his response to a situation that resulted in him rightly feeling ashamed about the response that he uh, gave to knowing Christ, but then how that was lifted, if that's the right way to put it, by his association with Christ and what Jesus said to him following those events. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly the right way to describe it. I think um, Peter Peter fell into shame as a consequence of uh, his cowardice, or however you want to explain, um, however, however you want to describe the, the betrayal. And then, as is so frequently the case, retreated into the isolation of his uh, previous life as a fisherman and just sort of uh, went off into hiding, perhaps. And there wasn't much that he could do, but Jesus uh, uh, approaches Peter and condescends once again and identifies with him and and calls him uh, to himself. Uh, It's exactly the picture that we get in the parable of Jesus in the prodigal son, where the, the, the son has fallen into shame, and there's, there's just nothing that the son can do to lift himself out of that shameful condition. But the father uh, runs to the son um, and puts a ring on his finger and throws a feast in his honor and goes out of his way to identify with him and to communicate to the larger community that um, he's with me. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that is, that's, that's the recipe from shame. It's uh, when, uh, in this case, Jesus, who has the highest kind of standing imaginable, identifies with us and lifts us out of our shameful For which I am grateful. My guest is uh, Dr. Greg Tin Elshoff. He is the author of For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. The book is published by Zondervan. I would certainly recommend it uh, that we rediscover this uh, virtue um, because it will serve us well to to know how to handle it rightly. And that's certainly what you um, instruct us to do in the book. Dr. Elshoff, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I am excited that the most reluctant convert, the untold story of C.S. Lewis, is going to be available uh, in theaters in the metro area beginning tomorrow, Wednesday, November the 3rd, running through Thursday, November 18th, there will be showings on the 3rd, the 7th, the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th 
of November. Among the theaters where it will be uh, available, Century 16 in Cedar Hills, Regal Bridgeport Village and IMAX, Century 16 Eastport Plaza, and um, Regal City Center. So those are the locations where you can see this wonderful film. And you can go to the website, C.S. Lewis Movie. Dot com And there's the trailer there. Now, Max McLean, who has performed as C.S. Lewis here in the Portland area and across the country for many years, plays C.S. Lewis in the movie. He is an extraordinary actor and in that performance in particular. So I know you will enjoy it. Um, and the uh, the subject matter is uh, very moving. Uh, anyway, it's going to be released nationwide on November the 3rd. That's tomorrow through the 18th with some days missed uh, in there, so check it out at cslewismovie dot com for all the important details. They say that if um, your theater uh, is sold out, um, they're going to be adding some dates later. I wouldn't necessarily count on that. It really depends on what kind of attendance they have in the uh, the first week or two. Um, so check that out, and uh, with an expectation that it may or may not be extended. Let's hope that it is, and that it becomes. Uh, widely um, viewed and popular. Uh, but it, again, he just does a great job. Max McLean, that voice alone is enough to capture your imagination. And again, it opens in theaters uh, tomorrow, November 3rd. And you can find out more at cslewismovie.com. It has all the theater information, where you can purchase your tickets, and so on. Well, children's scream time has doubled during the pandemic, <clears throat> and it hasn't gone down since. That's according to new research. Researchers from the University of California, San Francisco, say youngsters are spreading almost, or rather spending almost eight hours a day looking at smartphones, tablets, and television. Eight hours a day. Now, you have to remember that these are kids who are in school the rest of the day. So that's what they're doing for the balance of the day. That's compared to less than four hours before COVID. Well, concerningly, this figure doesn't include the time spent on computers for schoolwork. Researchers focused completely on recreational activities like playing video games, chatting on social media, texting, surfing the Internet, watching or streaming movies and TV shows, along with contributing to a more sedentary lifestyle. Study authors say this shift is also affecting the mental health of many adolescents. They write that as screen time increased, so did adolescents worry and stress while their coping abilities declined. Well, that's what the corresponding author, Dr. Jason Nagata, in the university release said, though social media and video chat can foster social connection and support of a sort. We found that most of the adolescent screen use during the pandemic didn't serve this purpose, end quote. Well, lockdowns, online learning, social distancing has led to a reliance on digital media for nearly all facets of, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> of adolescents' lives over the last Two years. Now think about the the length. Two years. Well, the study published in the journal JAMA Pediatrics, and I would encourage you to read it if you have youngsters, is the first to show an increase using uh, data from across the United States. Now the findings come from surveys of 5,412 participants between the ages of 10 and 14 who self-report their uh, screen time both before, during, and after. Well, we're not at after yet. Of the pandemic. A result show that adolescents are on average looking at screens for recreation for 7.7 hours a day. This is higher than pre pandemic uh, estimates of 3.8 hours from the same group of children. Now, most of this activity centers around watching or streaming videos, movies, 
or um, television shows playing multi or single player video games also contributed to the increase because now you can be in your home and your friends in their homes and you can all connect together and play the same game together in real time. Well, the study authors say poorer mental health, greater perceived stress show a link to higher total screen usage. More social support and coping behaviors showed a connection with lower total screen use. Well, despite gradual reversal of quarantine restrictions, studies suggest screen time continues to remain high. This can be harmful, they say, not just for mental health, but for physical health as well. Screen time lends itself to more sedentary time and less physical activity, snacking while distracted, eating in the absence of hunger and greater exposure to food advertising. Uh, Dr. Nagata explained, well, we generally found higher screen time in black and Latino adolescents uh, homes and in those from lower income households. He concludes this may be due to structural and systematic factors such as lack of financial resources to do other kinds of activities or lack of access to safe outdoor spaces. Well, the rise in children's screen time during the pandemic has triggered calls for greater interactivity and outdoor exercise. Previous studies have also linked smartphone and computer use to rising rates of eye health issues and nearsightedness among school children. Something to think about as we uh, navigate what we hope will be uh, the end of a pandemic. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.